0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As we near the end of our time in the Women's Lectionary this year, we also are coming to the end of David's reign in our Old Testament readings. Solomon now comes to the front to finally build the temple. Our reading from Revelation reminds us that this is a prefiguring, an anticipation of what we are to receive when the new heavens and the new earth are here. Jerusalem we see in Revelation coming down out of heaven from God. No temple because we see that God and the Lamb are the temple. New creation doesn't have a physical temple building, but God's very self is with us. And we hear Jesus say this, do not worry. What shall I eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all these the Gentiles strive to And indeed, your heavenly provider knows that you need all of these. But strive first for the reign of God and God's righteousness, and all these will be given to you. All this coming immediately after Jesus has said, you cannot serve God and money. The word there, the Aramaic word is mammon. If you've known me for three minutes, you know I like that. (laughs) So, we're going to talk about God and mammon and our decision of which we're going to serve today. Two ways of life are considered in our text, the way of mammon or God's kingdom. Two very different political economies with opposing logics and ways and customs and values today. Mammon demands worry as worship. Our very life is forfeit in an exchange oppressive, exploitative, exclusive political economy in pursuit of basic survival. But today we proclaim God's political economy, God's reign, God's kingdom is full of justice and inclusion and abundance. Let us enter together into the all these things will be given to you all life. Jesus says, worry we not. Forget about it. His audience is made up of day laborers, the poor. We know from sociological research, historical research, that 50% of the population in Jesus' day was living hand to mouth, which means when they prayed, Give us this day our daily bread, they really didn't know where it was coming from. The other 50% uh, was made up of about 30 to 45% of people who had enough for today, but maybe not next week. Just complete destitution that we often cannot relate to, or it's very far from us. So now, now, hear these words Jesus says to these people: don't worry about your basic survival, eat, drink, and clothing. Jesus is saying, don't worry about basic survival necessities to people who are living barely surviving. What is going on here? How is this not completely tone deaf by Jesus? Yeah? How is this not a taunt? Stop being hungry, starving person. Stop being cold, naked person. Stop being thirsty, parched person. I'm reminded uh, of Jesus' brother James. In the first chapter of the Epistle to James, he says, If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? I think we feel this too in our bodies, those of us who deal with anxiety and worry, do we not? We hear Jesus say, do not worry. And we're like, oh, oh. That's, that's all I needed was somebody just to tell me to stop. It's good to know I shouldn't worry. That should fix it. Easy peasy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So let's put out there that maybe Jesus is completely tone deaf And is telling people to do something that's impossible. Or. Or. Jesus here is exposing the cost of serving mammon. Worry. This is how mammon works. Which all these people who are listening to him would know very well. Scarcity. Exploitation. Oppression. Extraction. Making even the necessities of life, a source of constant anxiety. (sighs) I want to suggest that Jesus isn't taunting worried people, even us today, with a command they can't keep. But rather he's naming how God's justice alleviates the tyranny of mammon. Strive first for God's kingdom and justice means we aren't to extract money and life from each other like Herod and the temple and Caesar do so that our very life is at risk. We live with and for each other so that we experience together all these things will be added to you all, life. Mammon demands all these things will be taken from you. Jesus declares all these things will be given to you. The logic of a kingdom, then, is generous. It's a human economy of justice and inclusion and abundance. You see, friends, mammon demands worry as our worship. Our very life, the very substance of what we need to survive is now now up for negotiation. There's an anxiety, a crushing anxiety about staying, about surviving, staying alive. But God's kingdom, God's political economy is not oppressive and exploitative and exclusive, but it's full of justice and inclusion and abundance. Let us enter together into this. All these things will be given to you all life today. Jesus invokes Solomon in our passage. Solomon in all his glory wasn't dressed like one of these. What's going on here? Well, uh, Dr. Gaffney pairs a passage from Solomon uh, with this text. I think they are meant to expose and enlighten each other. So let's take a few moments, not too many, to look at <laughs> to look at what's going on in Israel around the time of building the temple. This is what 1 Kings 5 is about. Most sermons I've heard about this, maybe you can relate. This is the pinnacle of like Israel's kingship. They finally get enough of their act together to build a temple, and this is a big big deal. Right? But I think there's something deeper happening here. Texts, uh, clues in the text that indicate that Gaffney then draws out by putting these texts together that uh, in First Kings 5, we see some of the ways that mammon is at work. Let me name them briefly. One, these kings keep wanting a temple, and God keeps going, I don't really need that. I feel like this is more about you than me. That's what God says over and over. Um, you see, God already had a temple. If you read, if we if read Genesis one and two, it's it's God creating an habitation for His glory. So the earth, the cosmos, the wind, the water, the dodo bird (RIP), all of them, <laughs> right? All of them are. To to reflect and contain the glory of God. So he told Israel on a number of occasions, I don't really need that. We see here God acquiescing, allowing, accommodating to humans wanting less than what God wants. This happens over and over and over in Scripture. Because that's how love works. God is will meet us where we really are. Even if we want even if we want a stinking temple. Number two, Solomon in his reasoning, in his uh, engaging Hiram changes the reason why David didn't want to build the temple. He, David, uh, Solomon says it was David's warfare that made the Lord reject him as temple builder, but what we're told in 2 Samuel is that the Lord rejects the temple because he wants to be free to move about his people. Number three, we're told that Solomon enters into a, quote, friendship or, quote, treaty with Tyre. That's the word beret. Which is also the word for covenant. When it's used between Israel and God, it's called a covenant, right? Entire is in the territory allocated to Asher, meaning it was initially supposed to be part of the promised land, but it was never conquered. Entire is among the nations with whom Israel is forbidden to enter into treaties explicitly. There's a hint then, a suggestion here that in entering into this friendship with Tyre, that Solomon is abandoning the covenant with God. Number four, the hits just keep coming for Solomon. He commands that the cedars of Lebanon be cut down for the temple, right? And the cedars of Lebanon, you've heard this phrase, it's it's repeated in the Psalms and the prophets, but the cedars of Lebanon becomes a symbol, a cipher In the prophets of pride and affluence and exploitation. Oppressive, wealthy people were called cedars of Lebanon. And cedar was an image linked with opulent empire. It it functions a bit like if I were to say, not just me, but like in our common parlance, if we say... um, it's interesting to say common parlance because parlance isn't common. If we were to say hedge funds, we would all be like, oh, we, that elicits a, a kind of a socioeconomic class of people. None of, us are, none of us are buying and selling hedge funds. That's how Cedars of Lebanon functioned. And so the fact that that's a part of building the temple, should, we should notice that. Number five, It took Solomon seven years to build the temple, which sounds impressive. You know, seven is an important number in Hebrew numerology. It means complete, it's a, a number of completion, perfection. It's impressive until you realize that Solomon took 13 years to build his primary residence. And the scripture is very explicit about how long it took to build each. And the size of Solomon's, not just primary residence, but his houses. All of them were bigger, more expansive and expensive, and took longer than the temple. Number five. Number six, Solomon conscripts Israelite workers to build his temple. We're told in verses 13 and 14, King Solomon conscripted laborers from all of Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that when they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home, Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. This is what really kicks in. We have some economic oppression. One month away and two months back, consider the impact of a farmer or even a, somebody engaged in pastoral labor. What happens to your crops and your animals while well, you're gone for one month and back for two, probably not working your land. You're probably dealing with the materials you were hewing and cutting down on that one month away. Who's growing food? Who's tending animals? Political. Solomon conscripts people living in the promised land into forced labor under supervisors in order to accomplish a building project. What does this remind you of? Forced labor, the word here in this verse uh, 13 and 14, is a phrase used to describe Israel's brick-making labor in Egypt. Economic, political, social. First Kings 9, which we didn't read today, makes it clear that the people conscripted were those who remained in the land apart from Israel. So it was part of the conquered people that, that were not Is- Israelites. And Deuteronomy prohibits treating foreigners and strangers living in Israel like this. It explicitly states, do not make them slaves. Do not make them do forced labor. So, let's recount. Solomon ruins the economy, disrupts families and the poor, disobeys Torah, and the story is told using language associated with 400 years of slavery. We could go on. Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, and has an affinity for chariots and horses, which is um, basically were nuclear bombs in this day. Like they were just like the military might. Military might was, uh, chariots and horses were a symbol for that. So what what we're being told in this text and what the prophets later confirm is that Solomon is Egyptifying Israel. Israel under Solomon is serving mammon, not God. Here's a quote from Wilde Gaffney. Quote, The effect of the conscription was so ruinous that when Solomon's son later tried to reinstitute the same policy under the same taskmaster, the people stoned him. The taskmaster. Adoniram. So then hearing all this, thinking about this, we can then maybe hear Jesus as Solomon in all his glory wasn't dressed like one of these. I've always took that as Solomon was amazing, but the lilies are better. Until we begin to like, pick apart that phrase, Solomon in all his glory, like the phrase in his glory always refers to God. Always. And I, I want to say there's maybe some like, low-key shade Jesus is throwing here. Like, even the guy who forsook, yeah, who forsook following God and did things for his own glory wasn't cared for, like you all will be in God's economy of justice. All these things will be taken from you, we see in 1 Kings 5. But today, we proclaim God's political economy the kingdom of God, God's reign is full of justice. We strive for that as we work for justice and inclusion and there's an abundance when we do that. Church, welcome to the. All these things will be added to y'all life. Revelation fills us out. We see this picture in Revelation of uh, the gates never being shut and there's no darkness. Basically, to put it in our our language like you don't have you don't need a secure you don't need a ring camera you don't need to lock your doors not because there's there's not because no one will come that's a stranger but because the economy of what's happening is so generous and abundant that people no longer think rationally about stealing <laughs> it's inconceivable So, a few things to say as we close. We have real needs here. Some economic, some relational, some uh, mental health needs, some physical needs. And seeking God's justice means tending to those needs together. You see, what Jesus operates with the assumption is, is not that like if you're hungry then why don't you just pray the starvation away? That is not what Jesus is saying here. Are you tracking with me? He's saying if you're hungry, give somebody something to eat. That's how you strive for my righteousness. You actually feed people who are hungry. Rather than saying, you know what, I've been hungry too in the past. I'll be praying for you. It's a real political economy. And that's how we collectively then see how all these things are added to us as Christ's body, striving for God's justice and reign, freeing each other from the tyranny of mammon. The dominion of fear and worry. Because mammon demands worry as worship. And all of us have experienced that tyranny. Sometimes it feels like our very life is forfeit in an oppressive, exploitative, exclusive political economy, sometimes in pursuit of basic survival. This is the world we live in. But today we proclaim God's political economy, God's kingdom is full of justice and inclusion and abundance. Church, together, as Christ's body, let us experience and surrender to all these things will be given to you all